Pip-Pip Cheerio, my dear. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hilary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, lovely. Welcome back to a more personal part two of our conversation on motherhood that we began last week. Since last week's episode, your responses have been so strong. We've continued talking about this on Instagram stories and on my Instagram feed. And it's just been really beautiful to go deeper on this topic, to hear from more of you in more unique and nuanced and complicated situations, perspectives, backgrounds, fears, hopes. I love that diversity. I think it gives us so much more empathy and compassion and grace for one another. And then when we give one another grace, we give ourselves more grace. But I also realized that last week my approach was really all-encompassing to welcome everyone at every stage, which is always my goal, to be as inclusive as possible and really say whatever our religion or politics or career or life stage your sexual orientation, we are all welcome here. And specifically on a topic like motherhood, we can all have our thoughts, feelings, histories. But as I reflected, I also realized that not sharing more personally and vulnerably doesn't help as much the people who are in my current and present stage or who loves someone who is. Maybe as you hear me talk, this sounds like your best friend or your sister-in-law or your daughter. And yet it's it's intimidating to talk about this topic because as we touched on last week, it is so deeply personal. It's so tender. I think it's so complex. It's such a huge part of life. We have such strong cultural beliefs about it. We are so impacted by our own mother. We are so impacted by our fertility, our singleness, our just all of the things. So because it is so deeply tender and personal, we can get really easily triggered uh, when someone has an experience, a preference, a belief, an opinion that's different than ours. Uh, we can feel really easily criticized. We can feel very activist, sort of, for whatever our approach is. And I think that that just says we we care about this a lot. There's And this is a big part of culture. We get a lot of messages about this. But I realize I feel more safe talking about hard things on the podcast because there is naturally a longer space between our trigger and our response. On Instagram, I think often the level of criticism where people sometimes don't even realize that they're criticizing or that they're saying something tender, they're saying something that could be triggering or insensitive. We, we get so trigger happy with our two thumbs that we just pop off a comment, we pop off a DM. And I find that on the podcast, I think because it's a longer conversation, you're really sitting here listening. There's a lot of space for nuance for you to pick up on. And then if you have something to say, you need to leave this application. You have to, after having spent a, a while here, go to the application of Instagram, go to find my profile, go to the DM. So it's very, very rare that I receive 
kind of criticism or pushback on something in a podcast episode where it is 100 times more normal on Instagram. So I realized in this last week of talking about it, I've been giving you more of a space to hear from you and one another, which is so beautiful. And I'll pin those stories on my profile if you missed those. But I also realized that I was really blessed in the last week from some voices that I heard from. I found two episodes of by Kate Kennedy of the Be There in Five podcast. I'll link to that in the description. She did two episodes back in the fall on uh, being a childless millennial. And she referenced in her podcast a blog post by Grace Atwood, another colleague. So I went and read that, and she linked through to some other resources. And I think I realized how how much it blessed me and how helpful it was for me to hear Kate process her story, other people's stories, and therefore feel like it is valuable to be vulnerable about deeply personal topics, even though it feels really intense to put yourself out there. But I think that it is important, and I do think that my perspective is not one that we hear about a lot. And we are thankfully hearing more about women who choose to not have children. That's the case of Grace and a lot of the resources she links to. And I'm so grateful that those women are speaking up more and are finding more community and finding more solidarity, not being alone. I think Kate is more similar to my situation, which is we are married and we are pretty sure we're going to have kids, but we feel terrified of the idea. (laughs) And we're trying to process how much of the stories and the memes that we see are just reality and we're not going to be able to escape them and it really is this bad and hard and crazy. Or these are, this is content, this is memes, these are extremes. Just because it's true for someone else means that it doesn't have to be true for you. And I don't think that there's a lot of that conversation. There's a lot of women that know they want to be mothers and a lot of women that know they don't. As someone who has been on the fence, I have seen very little over the years saying, I'm really not sure. I feel very torn. And I therefore am going to be brave and speak into this space. So four confessions, so to speak, today. First one is, I think we will probably have a baby. And that makes me feel jealous of people who don't. And I shared last week some accounts of people who don't. Um, Again, there's plenty of those in Grace's post linked below. And I think that is so beautiful that those communities exist. And I am grateful there are places for people to feel seen, supported, and celebrated, whatever their choice and story is. And also, the responses to that life choice are pretty insane and disgusting. When you read articles, when you follow accounts, when you look at blog posts, so all the more so, I am deeply celebratory that there are women who are sharing their story who are supporting one another. Amazing. But in my case, I'm going to have to make a serious trade-off in my life. And I'm jealous of people who are passionate about their side. And most everything else in my life, I am deeply passionate about my side. I am sure there are trade-offs and to being single, but I love being married. 
And it was always very clear to me that I wanted to be married. So 97, 98, 99% of the time, I love being married. And occasionally I'm like, you are driving me bananas and my life would be so much easier if I did not have to figure out how to communicate with you. But I don't walk around thinking, I kind of sometimes wish I was single, like, oh, that would so much be easier and that would be a pro. I I am 99% in everything that I want is the the stuff of marriage. There are trade-offs to being an entrepreneur or working a corporate job. Two to three percent of my year, I have moments or seasons where I long for what seems like an easier and less stress-filled life of working for someone else, of having normal hours, of just all of the things. But I love being an entrepreneur. The other 97% of the time, it feels so right for me, so aligned. It plays to my strengths. It lights me up. It delights me. So if you are 97% sure you want something, then the trade-offs feel much smaller. One, two, three percent of your year, you're like, I kind of wish I had something different. But if you're 65% sure, then a third of the time you want the opposite. And that feels really intense then to see people being like, here are all the positives of not having kids. And I'm like, I want all of those things. I want freedom, peace, quiet, calm. I want ease. I hustled for so many years in musical theater and now as an entrepreneur, I feel like I am just now getting to the place where I have that in life. I mean, I truly feel like I got to that place like 14 months ago and then I lost it again in the fall and now I've been back here for like three months. And so the idea that, the idea that I might only have that for a few years And then for the next 20 years, be back in a season of this is hard, it's exhausting, it is hustle, it is nonstop. It's it's very hard. And I was following one of those accounts for a short while. I think it's called Rich Auntie or Rich Auntie Lifestyle or something. It's Rachel Cargill's account. And... I just, I I unfollowed because I realized that it wasn't good for me. Again, I am so grateful that it exists for that community. But I realized it was kind of triggering to me because it was saying, you're 65% sure you want a kid. But the other 35% of you, it's almost like if you were married, but you were still on Tinder. Like, you're like, I just want to see what's out there. I just want to see how the other half lives. Probably not great for your satisfaction and your decision, right? And your like marital peace when you're constantly like, oh, that guy's single? I don't know. He's got that that my husband doesn't have. That's what I realized was happening for me in following this account because I'm like, these things that you guys are celebrating that you have, like I want those things too. But I, I think I also want the baby and I, I, I'm I'm 65%. That's what I'm leaning towards. So now I'm just kind of watching this account of the things that I – that I don't have. And I look at Grace's blog and she links to a bunch of other articles at the bottom, or maybe it was one of the other blogs that it linked through to. But I realize reading those articles isn't healthy or helpful for me because I I know the pros to not having children. My challenge is that I am mourning the loss of those. And I am very weighed down by 
the trade-off, and I think that that's something a lot of people in life can relate to. You might not relate to it on motherhood. You might be very clear that you don't want children or that you do, um, or you, you, you always wanted to be a mom and you are and you love it. But there may be other things in your life about whether or not to start a, career, uh, a business or you know whether or not to get married or other things in your life where you might be able to relate. I've, I felt super torn. I've talked about this with New York City, whether we'll leave New York City or when or where will we move. But we can change our mind on that. It's a big factor that Jeremy and I keep coming back to. If we want to move to Mexico for three years, we can choose to move back to New York City. If we want to have a kid and stay in New York City for three years, we can move to Mexico after that. We are very blessed to have the flexibility. But if I had to make a choice for the next 20 years that I either can never come back to New York or I can never leave, that feels terrifying because I, I am so acutely aware of the pros and cons of either side. And what I also, as a PS, what I also think is interesting about this is I I have a very small extended family. I really have two aunts that we are close in a relationship with, and both of them elected not to have children. They've both been married for decades, happy marriages, just neither of them ever had a desire to have children. It wasn't due to infertility. It was simply not a desire to have them. And over the years, I mean, pre-Instagram, pre-seeing all the mommy bloggers and all of that, their lives are largely what makes has made me feel like I probably do want to have kids eventually. Seeing their life in their 50s, 60s, 70s compared to my mom, I just didn't, my, my gut didn't resonate with that's what I want. I looked at my mom and I thought in the second half of your life, having a family feels much more appealing to me. So that's also interesting to notice what I see modeled in real life and what that leans me towards and then what I see on Instagram. And as I said last week, that's not to vilify social media. It might be the opposite for you. Maybe you don't have, you, you did not have a positive relationship with your mom and through the internet, you've been able to see how beautiful that is. You've been able to see boundaries and mental health and things that you didn't have in your real life. But I think it's just fascinating to notice where am I getting triggered? What is it that is triggering me? And it was really helpful for me when I realized in all these other areas of life, things that people say, you know, like moving to New York City, pursuing Broadway, pursuing entrepreneurship, there's things I've done in my life where I think to other people, they're like, oh, I could never. You know, it seems so terrifying. It seems so overwhelming. It takes such courage. The way you have to put out there, the you know, all this stuff. When you when something 97% lights you up, it doesn't feel that way. It just feels like your destiny. It feels like what you're meant to be doing. And so, so too, if you've always, like my sister, always envisioned yourself as a stay-at-home mom and being a mom lights you up, you might not resonate with me, but maybe you can resonate when you're like, you know what though? I I kind of go back and forth about being an entrepreneur sometimes and wishing I had something else. And oh, Hillary, you make it look so easy to just confidently make that leap. And I think it can be helpful to say, it might not be on the same thing, but we might be able to relate to each other on saying there are things in my life I feel 97% peace around. And that makes it a lot easier to choose that path. And there are other things that I feel 50-50 or, you know, so 
6633 and that is a lot harder to sit with and I acknowledge that and that might even help you to have more empathy for someone in your life that you don't share that thing with them but when you think about this concept you realize okay this is why this area is hard for them there are genuine trade-offs and they're not just complaining they're not just dragging their feet because you know eventually we're like okay I get it there's trade-offs either side you're gonna have to make a choice but when we're talking about something like being a parent it there's no take backs. <laughs> so I think for those of us that don't feel 95% clear that it's a yes or a no, it it there feels like there is such weight. And that's what I really heard listening to this other podcaster, Kate Kennedy, speak about it that made me feel like, okay, I think maybe we need some more voices on this space. So the second thing that I want to confess is I know I have such privilege in this area that I feel guilty talking about it. Because I didn't get married at 22, like I had planned since I was 15. I mean, I truly thought I was going to get married at 21, 22. I didn't have kids by the time I was 27, like I thought would be totally normal. I built a business. And I worked very hard at that business. But even within that, A, my life path of building a career before I had children. B, the life path of building a career, it it worked. It went well. And I know so many women that also work very hard and their business isn't as successful. So even in there, I am privileged that I my, my business is successful. So I will be able, if I have a baby, to afford a nanny, to afford help. I won't have to choose between my career and being a mom. There will, that's not to say that there won't be trade-offs in my career and that I could do more if I chose not to be a mom, but it's a very different thing when you're your own boss and you're setting your goals and your priorities and all of that as opposed to being in an industry where maybe it's very male-dominated and there's not a lot of support for that work-life balance. There's, you know, the whole Sheryl Sandberg lean-in stuff. And the fact that I won't have to make that choice, I don't have to defend it to anyone, I don't have to worry about anyone's judgment, it's very accepted in the world of female entrepreneurship to be a mom. I don't have to feel like I'm working just to pay a nanny. My salary isn't just a little bit more than what daycare or help costs where sometimes you're like, is it really worth it that I'm working because I'm pretty much just turning around and paying for this other thing? I don't have to choose between being a stay-at-home mom or working 40, 50 hours a week. I was a nanny early on in entrepreneurship. It's one of the side jobs that I used to get my business started. And the family who I adored that I nannied for they both worked in the financial district, in finance and business, and they worked long hours. And they often, they would see their son for 90 minutes in the morning. He'd be at daycare all day. I'd pick him up at five because they'd have a dinner. I'd put him to bed and they'd see him again the next day. They pretty much saw him on weekends or for like short, you know, sh short little windows. So even there, there are women who are in a career where it's like, if I do want to keep working, I also get very little time with my kids. I believe I'll be able to work 20 or 30 hours a week, and meaning I can do that financially and I can do that freedom success-wise. I don't have to fight anybody on that. I don't have to justify that to anyone. It doesn't mean that I'm going to like take a step back for, for 10 years on some specific corporate ladder. Like It's my 
story. And I realize how rare that is. I also can afford to do egg freezing or IVF. I I would have the choice to extend my window of time or at least be less panicked with every year of feeling like, well, what if we wait too long and then we need fertility assistance or something? And that has just weighed heavy on my heart for so many years because it's just not an option for the majority of friends in my life. Half of my best friends are single, more than that, actually. Well, most of my New York friends are single. I have more married and mom friends, just coincidentally through colleagues that I've met through Instagram. But here in New York, most of my friends are single. And it's I'm aware that it's not a conversation that we can really just have over drinks because they're a school teacher, they're an actor. Like we're just not in the same financial demographic where for me to even just muse with my girlfriends about, hey, what do you think about this? Would you ever consider it? Like at what age do you think? Blah, blah, blah. So even just that, I'm aware of my privilege that I have girlfriends that are, you know, 35, 37, and single, and I I so wish that they could do that to feel like there is a little bit more breathing room, and that just is not, uh, it's just not a financial possibility for them. Also, I'm married. I'm no longer wondering if that's going to happen, what age am I going to be when I meet him, how long do, till we get married, then how long do we want to get, get, you know, till we have kids. I also have such a supportive partner. Jeremy, honestly, without kids, does about 70% of the work around the house. Um, And I feel less guilty about that since hearing other women share about it. Amy Porterfield has talked about that. Um, Kate Kennedy on that podcast that I linked, she talked about just kind of not being the stereotypical sort of super housewoman. But the truth is, even with all of that, I feel really intimidated. I am literally in the best possible situation in terms of the financial support, the career, freedom, having a partner, knowing that partner would be supportive. And even with all of that, I am still so afraid. Like, what if every mealtime is exhausting? What if every bedtime routine is exhausting? What if they're high energy? What if they're loud? And as I said, I feel guilty talking about it because there's part of me that feels like I'm so privileged. I don't want to point all those things out and have someone feel like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize how hard it is for me. Or I didn't even realize these other things that could, could, I could be privileged in until Hillary pointed it out. And now I feel like my situation's even harder. But on the other hand, I, because we always live in the end here, I also think it's, healthy and helpful when we acknowledge that we can have privilege and still deeply struggle because it also helps us to not idealize or idolize that one of those things would be the answer. In the same way that we talk here about um, body confidence, that I am so aware as a size two-ish woman that I have thin privilege, that getting dressed, finding clothes, body confidence, feeling beautiful in my body, all of that is easier for me because I naturally have this metabolism. It is not because I go to the gym all the time. It is not because I never eat dessert or never drink wine. I am just privileged. 
And I also know from over a decade of being a stylist that it doesn't matter whether you are a 2 or a 12 or a 22, you can have just as much body insecurity, obsession with a certain part of your body, hard time feeling beautiful, hard time feeling clothes that fit, feeling like finding clothes that you feel like fit. And so both of those things can be true. We can acknowledge that it's easier. And we also, the reason why I talk about that so often is because I also don't, I also want to demystify the idea if I was just 10 pounds thinner, dot, 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 if I was just two sizes smaller. And I think that we talked about that in our Enough series recently. We did that three-part series on Enough. We have such that constant subconscious story that says, I am almost to what would make me happy enough, joyful enough, peaceful enough. And I think this can be an area as well. If only I could afford a nanny. If only I was married. If only I was in a different career. If only I could do egg freezing. And maybe you are 100% right. And that would change everything. And maybe it wouldn't. If you, like me, are feeling so deeply torn on this issue, maybe having one of those things really would not change anything. And I also think another element of privilege that I hadn't thought about, whereas uh, those are all the ways in which I am privileged, a way in which I realized I am possibly disadvantaged is that Kate Kennedy podcast, she talked about being a highly sensitive person, which is a technical therapeutic term, an HSP. This is not something I was familiar with. Googled, found a test, I'll link it in the description below, took the test, definitely highly sensitive person, uh, not surprising when you read through it. Um, if you know anything about me, it really has a lot to do with being affected by other people's pain, other people's moods, wanting a lot of calmness and quiet, being affected by sounds and stimulation and things that make you anxious and getting startled easily. All of those kinds of things that I know to be true about me. I just wasn't really familiar with this specific phrase. And Kate said that she'd read some articles on being on parenting as an HSP. One of them that I found that I thought was helpful, I will link in the description below. But then I also read a, there's a book on being a highly sensitive person. That author then wrote one about parenting as an HSP. And the top review on it on Amazon said... Uh, it gave it four stars out of five, so it wasn't like, it was awful, but it said, I didn't love this book. The overall tone was less encouraging than I would have hoped. You can say, quote, many things about being a parent are difficult, but you'll find it's worth every minute. Or, well, it might be worth every minute, being a parent is incredibly difficult, and the author seems to fall into the latter camp. And I thought that was so helpful, just as a general aside, to really think about how we can say the exact same sentence, but based on which goes first and what what precedes and what follows the but or the and can make such a difference into whether it is negative or positive. And by saying, e even without the... HSP angle, just saying, oh, parenting is so hard, but it really is so worth it. Or I love my kids, but parenting really is hard. I mean, we're just going in a very different tone. And so in some ways, I 
read the first article I read on it, by the way, which I didn't link. I was like, this is not helpful. It's just listing out. Here's 12 ways parenting is going to be harder for you if you're a highly sensitive person. Then I went to this book and was like, oh my gosh, this this expert apparently wrote a book and the whole thing makes people feel like it, this is going to be even worse. It's going to be even harder. And so in some ways, it also just occurred to me, maybe there is, maybe there is a reason that I am, in addition to I'm 65, 35, and so I feel really torn, maybe there also are personalities that that do make this harder for me. And I have subconsciously, I didn't have a phrase for it. I didn't have a checklist for it. But some of the things that I'm nervous about are because I know myself well and I know the things that make me happy. And also that I, I'm going to have Jeremy take this test later, but I also think he might be the same. Some of the things I'll mention in a minute that we've noticed with being around other kids, we're, we're very aligned on. And so in some ways, it made me think, you might be listening to this saying, oh, Hillary has such financial privilege that I don't have. But could it also be true? You might have a personality privilege in this way that I don't have. There may be a personality type that makes me ideally suited for entrepreneurship that is not the same personality type you have. But like my sister, you may be perfectly cut out to be a mom and so thrilled with it and so happy doing it all of the time. And maybe you might realize after listening to this, you know what, what I'm privileged in, I, I can't afford a nanny, I don't have a housekeeper, etc. But I am privileged that being a mom really plays to my strengths. Personality-wise, I am really well-equipped to be a mom and not everyone is. And maybe that even gives you more grace for someone else in your life who either A, is really struggling with the back and forth of any decision, parenting or otherwise. And because you can realize now, you know, I'm an, I'm 97% clear in this area and they're 60-40. So I, I, I have grace for them. That has to be really hard. Or... They have a different personality than me, and I'm super suited to this thing. So I'm like, just get over it. It's not a big deal. Like, what? Why do you have to stress about it? And maybe now I can say, you know what? I think you have a different personality. And so I can appreciate, I can honor that it might be harder for you. Third confession I'll share is that a health situation made me more confident that I do want a baby. And I think that's an important part of my story as I talk about being on the fence that I am on I I was on the fence for many years, especially being single and not knowing who my person was and not knowing, you know, maybe I was meant to marry someone who was divorced and already had children and maybe that's why I didn't have this baby fever thing. The uh, guy I dated before Jeremy had three kids and I kind of thought like, all right, God, maybe that is why I don't have this thing that seems like all, all other women seem to have this baby fever thing. Maybe you withheld that from me because I'm meant to be a stepmother and be totally fine with never doing the baby phase of things. So I really was on the fence for a long time, though, as I said, I would look at my aunts and be like, but I, I think I see having kids when I'm older, though. So like if you had forced me five, 10 years ago, I would have been like, I, I would pick yes. I'm still on the fence, but I think I would pick yes. That decision has gotten clearer in the last few years. I won't go into all the details, but it was very similar to that episode of Friends where Rachel thinks she's pregnant. She takes the pregnancy test. She hands it to Phoebe to like wait for the three minutes to be up. Phoebe says it's negative. And Rachel's 
really sad and she realizes like I guess I wanted it to be a yes and Phoebe's like just kidding it's a yes she's like what she's like well this way you really know how you felt she's like well that was quite the gamble because what if I had been thrilled and she's like well but you weren't um very very Phoebe-esque interaction but early on in our marriage we were in the position where the door of having a biological child might have been closed and while we were waiting for those results in that process I thought, if I'm not meant to, won't I feel a sense of relief if it's looking like it might be a no? That I'll kind of feel like I'm off the hook. Like I didn't really have to decide, um, you know, uh, Cinderella into the into the woods. I know what my decision is, which is not to decide. Sometimes it's lovely to be like, oh, the decision was made for me. Phew, didn't have to figure that out. And I thought, maybe I'll just feel this peace that it's a closed door. Like, like, okay, thank you, God. And I could have felt a lot of peace around being able to say to people, oh, we're not having children. We just biologically can't. And we feel a lot of peace about that. That would have been a relief, In could have been a relief after feeling the weight for so many years of, it seems like everybody else knows what they want in this area. And by the way, one of my best friends for a long time, they have I mentioned them last week, they've been married for 12 years. They don't uh, they they choose to be child-free. So it wasn't like everyone around me was having kids, but if they weren't, they were clear about that. And I felt like I was the only one on the fence. But I, I didn't feel that. I did not feel that peace. I didn't want it to be a closed door. And maybe that's because I just still wanted to keep my options open. Maybe that's because I wanted it to be my choice. I didn't want to be controlled. But my gut says that's not it. Like my gut in the years since says it was my Rachel negative pregnancy test where at the idea of it being a closed door, I found my true answer of I am really leaning and pressing and praying more for it to be a yes. And I'm going to feel devastated if it's a no. And I think that gives me my answer. So that helps over the last few years. I think sometimes we have those inflection moments in our decision making. And so I do want to share that for anyone that feels really on the fence to know, you know, that that, that's not going to be your medical situation. But sometimes I think there's such a story around motherhood of you'll know when you're ready. You know, like when the timing's right, that's when the desire will kick in. And so I think it can be helpful to be like, what was it for you that was the tipping point? And I'm like, well, in my case, it was this medical thing that made me feel less like I'm deciding and more clear and confident this is going to be the path for us. But then instead that just switched to now though, I feel more heavy with the reality. Like... I, I do think we're doing this. That feels kind of good to have made that decision, even though we're so few years out. But I'm not any less terrified. If anything, I may be more terrified because I am pretty confident that we're doing this. And then fourth and finally, oh, I will confess that this feels like the only area of my life that I am not allowed to say, I will do it my way. And I will find my peace and joy in it. Because I fear, not just I fear, I know 
<laughs> because I've been in this business a long time. I know if publicly I say some of my ideas, I will be responded to condescendingly because I am not yet a mother. And therefore, which I very much acknowledge, I'm not a mother, but I am my person. Like I have lived a life in my body and my soul and my brain and my heart. And somewhere in there is a balance that I think we often say to women, if you haven't been through this, then you can't possibly know. And that is both true and you also haven't lived life in my body. So you can't possibly know what it will be like for me to have a child, for me to have a mother, for my marriage, for for Jeremy, because you are a different human. And those conversations we had on stories, which about motherhood, which again, I'll pin on my profile, the most common reply from moms on what is the advice you get that it that you hate the most or feels the most harmful or exhausting or annoying? And the phrase that kept coming up again and again and again and again was just you wait or wait until. And they were all this energy of, you know, it's going to get harder. You know, get get your sleep in while you can. Just wait until that baby comes, you know? Oh, you think the infant stage is, is hard? Just wait till you get to the toddler stage. Oh, just wait until they start walking. Just wait until they're in that tween stage. Just wait until they're a teenager. This constant feeling of it's going to get harder or I know what you don't know. Like, you think it's bad now, sister, I've been down the road, and I tell you, it gets even, you know, worse from here. Or the idea that it gets better, but not in a hope-filled way, actually in a, you'll regret having complained now. Like, this time goes by so fast, don't complain, be in the moment, it's all worth it. One day you'll look back and you'll think this time was magical. One day you'll look back and wish you could do this all over again. Like, you know, it's either like, this is the hard part, just keep barreling through, or you think this is hard, even harder is coming. And it all feels like fear, either of this is going to get even worse, or you're going to regret the way you're doing this now, that you're not grateful enough, that you're not present enough, that you're whatever, or it's condescension of, I know more than you. Because I've been down the road, you you think you have an experience now? Well, let me tell you, it's it's gonna get even harder. Or this is the this is the easiest that it gets, or you're gonna regret that you did, you know. And I think, like I said last week, it might be because parenting is hard and deeply personal. And we want to, my, my best theory is that we wanna almost say it's really hard to one another to emphasize that we are not doing it wrong. As long as I just keep reminding everybody else that it's hard, the fact that it's hard for me, it keeps the narrative of, well, this is the only option. I'm not broken. I'm not bad at this. It's it's hard for everybody. Let's just all keep talking about how it's hard. Or it's almost preemptive. Like, it is hard for me, and I I subconsciously want it to be hard for you too, because otherwise there's something broken and wrong with me. 
if I if I thought that it was easier for other people, I would feel shame, guilt, failure, and frustration. So I just want to keep pushing the message to everybody else. It's hard. It's hard. Don't let don't let anybody tell you that it's not because it is hard for me and I'm sure it's going to be hard for you because if it's easy for you, then that will make me feel badly. And I also think it might be a sense of having advice to share is part of the upside because we we love to be helpful. We love to be experts on things. We love to know things. And so whether that's because we are, you know, an Enneagram 2 that just loves to help or we're an Enneagram 6 that wants to have the answer, you know, of like how to do things like the best in a safe way, whatever our personality, I think sometimes it can almost feel like I have built up so much knowledge in this area and it has been so hard that an upside are the moments when I get to share it. And everyone loves to give advice, so we're going around just spewing unsolicited advice at one another nonstop. There was also a lot of that response, was the amount of unsolicited advice. Or even, is it ever like subconscious payback or not realizing that those were the stories that were passed down to you? Like, my mother and mother-in-law kept telling me all the wrong things I was doing, so that's all, that's just, that's the way it goes. You know, now it's happening to you. Now I'm the one giving you the unsolicited advice because I just never really paused to be like, actually, I think I'd like to set a boundary. And my mother and my mother-in-law's negative perspectives are just not going to be welcome in this household. I'm going to set that boundary for myself. And therefore, I'm going to pass on that boundary setting. If I didn't pass on that boundaries, then I, I, I'm not thinking about how to have that boundary for you. And I say all of that knowing this is not just about parenthood. There is so much that we can be negative about. You know, marriage is the old ball and chain. For your wedding, it's your last night of freedom. It's time to settle down. Um, we've had, uh, we were having an Instagram stories conversation about work recently. And I noticed how many people, we were talking about slowing down in general. What do you feel like? Why do you feel like it's challenging to slow down? What are your questions with that? And so many people referenced work and words like demanding, trapped, stuck, have to. And so I think we accept a lot of stories about how hard our lives are. And you've heard me talk about this before. I just don't resonate with the we can do hard themes we, we can do hard things ethos. That is not to say that I think life is going to be a cakewalk and everything magical is always going to happen for you. But to go through life being like, we can do hard things, we can do hard things, it's, it's, it's neuro-linguistic processing. It's, it's psychologically proven. If we keep focusing on how hard things are, we will see more evidence that things are hard. And if we focus on the fact that things are easy and we are blessed and we can, I can think creatively and the universe has my back and God will give me what I need, whatever it is that works for you, we will see more of that. So my approach in general in life is to, for my little alert to go up when there's messages about how hard things are or how polarizing the other side is. I think we can look for things to be easier, and I think we have more in common than divides us. <laughs> Those are key themes here in the Dean Street community. But that doesn't mean that I'm Pollyanna about everything. I never try to sugarcoat that entrepreneurship is easy. 
here's the key difference to me. I don't go around saying, guys, it's so easy. Everybody should start a business. You just make money in your sleep. You put up a funnel. Seriously, you got to start a business. Whatever you love, you got to monetize that. Everybody needs a side hustle. That, that's not me at all whatsoever. Whenever people talk about wanting to start a business, I always say, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's so incredibly worth it. And I have noted for years, that is also what people tend to say about parenthood. But I also specify... I feel deeply called to it. And not everyone does. I do not believe that everybody should be an entrepreneur. So I think being honest about the hard part is authentic and it's helpful and it would be, it's damaging to make it seem too easy. But I've also actively worked for years to make it easier for myself. I have sought out desperately as my number one focus, how can I make this easier? I do not want to accept a lifestyle of hustle. I do not want to accept burnout. I don't want to accept exhaustion. I, I, I want to push back on friends who text me like, I know you're so busy. And I'm like, actually, I'm not. I'm not. I have time for the things that matter in my life, and you're one of those things. Actually, I want to like reframe this idea that just because I have a business means I'm busy or I'm busier than anyone else. So I, I don't say that it is easy. But I work to make it easier and I teach that and I pass that on. That's what's in my Creative Business Accelerator course. It's what's in my Elegant Excellence Mastermind. It's what's in my Elegant Excellence Schools Journal. Everything is about my style teaching. Is It is not easy to find clothes that, that make you feel beautiful. It's not easy to work on your body image, but let's make it easier. So I choose an approach to marriage and business and friendship and life that is about making things easier. How can I do less but better? How can I rest more, be slower, be more grateful, choose my thoughts, have mental health, all of that? But I feel trepidatious, to be honest, that that's my approach to motherhood. Because number one of that privilege, I acknowledge that it will be easier for me because of some of these things that I have put in place. Just being able to afford help and healthcare is devastatingly puts me leaps and bounds around so many people here in America. So I don't want to be like, guys, Freedom Mom's going to be easy. And then have someone be like, right. I mean, you have a partner, you have healthcare, you can afford help. Like, so there's that. I I hesitate to say, I'm choosing to believe that this is going to be easy because I, I don't want it to sound like I am being daft and oblivious to the fact that I have that. But the bigger reason, honestly, is the just you wait. It's the condescension that says, I can't do it better for me than someone else has. And I tend to have a lot of humility about things that I don't know because humility feels safer to me than haughtiness. So I don't really go around overly haughty because it just doesn't feel, that makes me more uncomfortable if I like act like I know something and then I'm like, oh, well, now I look dumb. So I'm much more so, I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to couch every advice that I get and maybe this and take what le- take what works for you, leave the rest. Like, I really want to be humble. Like, I don't have all the answers. So I want to go in humble and I also want to go in confident 
that I do know myself and that I can make my my life choices. I can curate my life. I can, you know, choose my thoughts, all of those things. So here are my visions. I will close with this. Here are some vision casting that Jeremy and I talk about for how we see ourselves having kids. And if you want these things too, DM me. I would love to hear it, that I'm not weird and alone. You know, just fine if I am. Um, If you have made these work for you, DM me. I would love to hear you be like, actually, that's kind of what we do. I've talked about this just a little bit on stories in the... um, a few weeks ago about uh, about quietness at home. And most of you wrote, yeah, yes, I miss that. We don't have that. And a few of you wrote, we just have a quiet family. And we've kind of been able to maintain that. And then a few of you, like a, a chunk, wrote like, oh my gosh, yes, that's my fear of motherhood. And I was like, okay, well, I heard from these two women, Emma and Allison today, who said their family does it this way. Like there are examples out there. So if you do these things, I'm going to share. DM me. I would love to hear. If you've sort of made it work, but there was a tweak, you're like, that was kind of my intention. Here's how it played out. Here's what like helped or whatever, like th- that worked better for us. Please DM me. I would love to hear. If you don't, believe this is realistic, I do not need you to DM me on this topic. I would love to hear from you on other topics, but I don't need to know if you're, if you are listening on the other side of the mic going, just you wait. All right, whatever. Get back to me in a few years. Totally fine. But I'm not criticizing your choices. I am not shaming you for how you do your things. Zero of that. I'm just sharing my desires and whether marriage, entrepreneurship, my Christian faith, my life in New York City, there are plenty of things I do that someone could be sitting on the other side of the microphone going, all right, (laughs) belief in God. Well, you're a wackadoo. (laughs) New York City, you crazy? What? Like marriage? Ugh, marriage is the worst. Everyone gets divorced. Entrepreneurship, are you insane? Ugh, I would never. There are plenty of things that someone could sit on the other side of the mic and roll their eyes and think, what on earth? But for me, I've thrived in them and they have delighted me and brought me joy and peace. And that's all I want for all of us. And we're going to have different paths to get there. So here are some of the vision casting Jeremy and I talk about. Mornings. I have a vision. Can we have quiet mornings where we put on quiet music, worship music? We wake up, we do our, our stretching and our baby yoga together. We do our meditation We just do quiet, slow, chill mornings. Mornings are for books or coloring or maybe we're going to watch videos, but we're going to watch like Bible stories or self-help videos, which means we're not watching cartoons that have to do with fights, explosions, escape, drama. I just noticed some of the things that the kids I'm around watch and I'm like, these are energetically very intense. I don't, I, I'm watching Designated Survivor right now from um, the ABC show from years ago. I don't start my morning with that. That would be an intense way to start my morning with like a chase with guns. And yet the the Lego people <laughs> always seem to be escaping dragons and intense things. And I'm like, maybe we just don't watch intense things in our morning. If we want to get our energy out, we can dance around to music, we can do yoga, we can stretch, but we don't get all our toys out and you know make a mess. We just have like more quiet mornings. Toys. Jeremy and I have talked about this a lot. We would like to be a no toys that make noise household. (laughs) Nothing that beeps, honks, 
talks to you, sings at you, plays music, unless it's an instrument itself, which is fine, like we love music, but then it should be in a place that cannot be reached at any time. It should be on a high shelf and we intentionally take it down to have music time at a designated time. But sensory overload, which is really interesting, it's one of the things that came up in the highly sensitive people quiz, it is too much for both of us. I really noticed this with him being around kids that he, the, the amount of noise really bothers him, which I, I didn't have any indication otherwise until then. And I realized like those little things we've talked about where we're like, oh my gosh, the amount of toys at like Christmas and my parents that make noise. And we're just like, nope, 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 take the batteries out of everything. But but my sister and brother-in-law are fine with it. They're they're like, they're they're buying them, they're into them, and we're like, okay, we're just gonna have a no toys that make noise rule in our household. We love you. Thank you for buying us um, you know, our kid uh Christmas and birthday presents. However, we're a no toys that make noise household, so please do not purchase anything. Don't even buy us instruments. We will electively buy on our side and decide, are we into drums? Are we into tambourines? How you know, what what do you wanna do? Um, afternoon quiet time. This is something I got from a friend of mine where initially it's nap time and then because she had multiple kids as the kids aged out of naps but the younger one was still sleeping, it just still stayed quiet time. We read books, we color, we do artwork, we have on chill music. We have times of the day where we, you know, play and run around and we like do our loud stuff. It just doesn't happen all day from the moment we wake up until bedtime. And we have these other rhythms where we create a sense of, oh, the, we, we have quiet type activities that we do at certain times of the day. And then we have loud or big and energetic playing that we do other times. Uh, number four, there is one option at mealtime. Got this from a friend as well. Um, that we eat the same meal. Uh, we aren't making a different meal for every child in the family. Uh, and you eat the same meal as the adults, obviously, once you're like, you know, old enough to eat solid foods and all of that. But if you, what they do in their family is if you don't eat it for dinner, you eat it for breakfast. If you don't eat it for breakfast, you eat it for lunch. So the the constant cajoling to get someone to eat this is not happening. This is something that I got from Jeremy because he, I mean, I got that specific thing from my friends, but Jeremy is one of eight kids. And being around kids with him where the entire meal is a negotiation for five more bites. Okay, how about three more bites? Okay, just two more big bites. Like, and it's like just, it's it's a negotiation the entire time you are negotiating with the tiny hostage. And he's like, what is this? He's like, my mom had eight kids. You, if w w What are these different meals? My mom made one meal for 10 people. If you didn't want to eat it, you could go to bed hungry, but that was what was for dinner. And he's like, she was a walking around negotiating with eight kids about how many bites they were going to take. And you get this dessert if you do this, and you don't have a, a bath if you don't do this. He's like, he's like, if you were, if you were hungry, you ate. And if you don't like the food, then go hungry. It's up to you. And I'm like, you know what? This is, you're making a really good point because with eight kids, that's not feasible. With one, it starts to feel feasible, but that means it's a choice. <laughs> it means it's an option. Now, obviously, you know, if the child isn't getting enough nutrients, like if there's really an issue that, you know, they 
have trouble swallowing whatever. I don't mean, you know, again, don't like take and run with these as like, she's going to abuse her child and they will be, be, be hungry. But I think it's just stories of like, food is about nourishing our bodies. We're not sitting down at every meal to have all of these pleasure hits of my favorite foods the same way as an adult. We, we order pizza sometimes, but we don't order pizza every single night. We just don't indulge in exactly what we're craving all the time. Sometimes we eat fish. Sometimes we eat our vegetables. And, you know, if they need more protein or veggie shakes during the day or as a supplement to a meal, you know, like there's just ways to get that nutrition into them without what we have experienced, which is you really just can't sit down to have a meal because the entire length of the meal is a negotiation about food. And this happens three times a day, every single day. And I just, I can't. Uh, number five, the nighttime wind down routine. Um, we're, we're noticing a theme here, guys, right? With the, with the slowness. I'm like, okay. There are times when I'm at a home and there are children literally running in circles up and down the stairs two minutes before they're supposed to be in bed. I mean, it makes, it, if I am bouncing around the house to Taylor Swift, I am probably not going to get into bed and fall asleep. Instead, I give myself an adult wind-down routine. It's what I listen to. It's what I, I take or I put in my body and then I get in bed and I read a book and like I get myself to wind down. If I was running around like crazy, I'm not going to be able to wind down either. So with do we read books and we do our stretching, our yoga, our meditation, our quiet music? Maybe we color at night. We don't play with toys. But just like what are the things that we do that really get us into this phase that's like, yep, we're in a 90-minute wind down phase at night because again that's what I need as an adult to be able to feel to you know fall asleep. Um number six, few activities, especially on weekends, which could even be simplifying church. And again, this is one of those things where I realize here are things that I have learned about myself as an adult that have worked better or worse for us in our marriage. And I don't want to buy into the story that I have to completely throw those things out for the next 15, 20 years to have kids. When we were planning our wedding every Saturday, and then after our wedding, we were moving, and in, then we were in the new house, and we had all these things to do. For probably two years of our relationship, we had the longest to-do list every Saturday. Simultaneously, Jeremy was volunteering for 12 hours every Sunday at church. He would wake up at like 4 or 5 in the morning. He would get home at 4 or 5 in the afternoon. For a lot of that time, I was not that far behind him in those windows. So Sunday was just exhausting. And then Saturday was exhausting. And so we were just always tired and grumpy. And now, partially with COVID, we have... We just stay home on Sundays prior to it. We just went back to church for the first time because we're not fully vaccinated. And uh, that was lovely. But we love that spaciousness of the weekends to not have any plans because we experienced what it was like to be so overly scheduled. So I accept that with a kid, we're not just going to be, you know, chilling on the couch and they're, we're, you know, they need to get their energy out and all of those things. But we still have a lot of conversations about we don't want to get into we are doing all these activities and we're running all these places and we're volunteering with all these things and we're in all of these groups. We just want to say we we can only do so many things and we need to pick and choose just like we're doing, you know, as adults right now. And the final one, this is brand new and kind of going down a whole other rabbit hole, but I thought I would throw it in. Something that I just started thinking about in the last couple of weeks is intentionality around cameras how can I not be tied to my phone 
wanting to capture everything. I notice this when I'm with my niece and nephews, nieces and nephew, how like you just you just want to keep taking pictures. They're so cute and they're always going to say something cute and they're going to do something cute and they're going to make art, they're going to put on a new outfit, they're going to, you know, and so I am off my phone when I'm with them because I want to be very present with them and I I'm, I I live across the country so I don't get to see them that much. But then I also realize I I can put my phone on airplane mode therefore, but I still am near my phone a lot because I am on it to take pictures. And I just was thinking recently about what is the value of taking hundreds of thousands of photos. I thought about it for myself because I was looking at my Google Photos. I was looking for something from a few years ago. And I thought, then what am I going to do with these photos in 10 years? How big am I just going to end up with more and more terabytes of storage 10 years and 20 years and 30 years? The amount of photos that we take, we take them in bursts. We take tons of angles. We take tons of screenshots. We've got thousands and thousands and thousands of photos in there. And truly, if I could go through and pull out, there's probably like 50 great photos a year, you know, but I'm never going to spend the time to actually go through and pull those out. But because I have that many, when I go to my parents' house, they have a tangible photo album for each year. And I can flip through and see my sister and I get older and we have birthday parties and we have our grandparents visiting. We have these specific events, our first day of school. What would... If if we fast forward in the future and my kid wants to see, like, their, Jeremy and I, when we were dating early married, but they're just scrolling through so much fluff to try to get to that. So that's a broader conversation about the amount of content, but it specifically came up in that um, one of my girlfriends said my wedding photographer, who she was chatting with at our wedding, uh, obviously as a photographer, photos are really important. They have a little girl. And he was telling her that one of the things they do is they only film her on an eight millimeter camera. And then every year they put together like a 10 to 15 minute video of that year and they watch it on Christmas morning. And I just thought that was such a beautiful outside the box way to say, as someone who professionally captures moments for people, to also simultaneously have the awareness for him and his wife to say, we don't want to spend our whole life looking through a lens at our child, but we also do care about the documenting. So much so that we're actually going to document less so that we have the, we aren't overwhelmed to be able to edit it down. And we're going to create this rhythm that we we watch a video on Christmas morning so there's a true deadline to get to it. Guys, I just thought that was one of the most genius things I had ever heard. When I think about the fact that I haven't put together a wedding album for us because, I mean, what what's the deadline? You know, I'll get around to it eventually, I guess. But on the other hand, I literally have scrapbooks behind me in my closet right now from the Broadway tour that I did a million years ago that are halfway done that I, I still have all the like the scrapbook papers and the stencil cutout. Like, what am I going to do with that? But I'm halfway there. I don't want to throw it out. I hate that it's not done. It just sits there. And one of my friends was saying his mom has boxes of uh, like with with rows for each year of their childhood. I think they have, there's four or five kids in the family. And she, her entire life, she has said, 
I'm going to get these into albums. And it's like it's become the thing that she never gets to. And every time there's a free weekend, every time there's a holiday, she's like, well, I really should spend time getting around to those, you know, albums. Now, that's more about organization than it is about parenthood. But I think it ties in that it's just all the little ways in which parenthood has gotten more complex than it was for our grandparents. Now it's even, I I'm constantly have a phone out, I constantly am documenting, and then I'm gonna daily upload someplace, and then eventually I'm gonna put these into albums. And like, even just that is a more, 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 you know, scarcity type energy where Jeremy and I can go a whole week without taking a picture because we're just here chilling on the couch. But I'm aware if there was a baby, I I'm what I see in the world is you want to capture them at all times and you want to then post a ton about them, you know, to share with people. So overall, it's just this theme of slowness, quiet, and less. Will all of those things happen? Absolutely not. (laughs) Will my house be perfectly slow and quiet and always have less? Absolutely not. But I notice how drained Jeremy and I are around some families where they don't seem drained. It's not a criticism because it works for them. I just have enough self-awareness and I am grateful for that wisdom and maturity to be clear. It's not going to work for us. And in some ways, like I believe I've shared here, our vision is likely that we will have one biological baby and then later in life we may adopt an, an older children or some older children. In part, I think because of that, that young phase when it's very loud and very chaotic, you know, if you've got three kids under the age of six, that's going to be a very different proposition than saying we only ever had one kid that was, you know, under the age of five. I also acknowledge that I have a very strict partner in a good way because of Jeremy being one of eight. I feel like there's just so many things that he's able to be like, this level of parenting and and coddling all the bells and whistles. He's like, this is just not the way that I grew up because it wasn't sustainable. And so I'm so grateful for his, for his kind of centering perspective where, you know, he, he could have had a different childhood. And obviously, like, we dance around and we sing and we want to have a dog and we love color and travel and like, you know, we're going to be fun parents. It doesn't mean like, We're just bringing down the hammer all the time. But in terms of this energy, more so of less, of him just being like, my mom could not do all of these things. She couldn't cook all of these meals. She couldn't cajole all of these bites. She couldn't negotiate with bedtime every time. You've got eight kids. We just got to like find a way to make it happen. So if my mom could do that with eight, we can do that with one, kind of. And so even that fact that we are very aligned in this way gives me the privilege of feeling more confident that we will find a way towards peace and joy that works for us. And I acknowledge again there the the privilege that there are single parents you don't have anybody to tag team with. One of my best friends had an alcoholic partner. You you she couldn't rely on him. She couldn't leave her child with them. I have a, know another couple that the dad is very childish. He is a whole heck of a lot of fun. But he is the fun parent. He is the yes parent. And that is exhausting for the mom. I have another friend who is a stay-at-home mom, and the dad is away at work a lot. And so, again, she doesn't have, you know, that that balance. And 
I feel like this vision that I have of joy and peace, I I get the sense that I, I know in saying it, there is going to be some response of, I don't have a right to say that I believe I can do it with more joy and peace for me because I'm not a parent. But I also do have a right because I am a human who's been very intentional about choosing hard things in life and making them work for her. I believe we are more empowered than we think. I say that all the time to you about your life. And it's like I'm saying it to myself now. I believe we can find more joy and less overwhelm than we think we can, than what's modeled in culture. That is the entire foundation of my business. More joy and less overwhelm has been my tagline for a decade. I've just been preaching it to you about your life. And now I'm realizing that in this area, I'm not believing it for my own. And that I need to say I refuse to feel, I refuse to be feared and shamed into the belief that this is the one area that it's impossible. And my, you know, my, my marriage, my business, living in New York City, is any of that perfect? No. Does, is it always easy? No. But is it truly full of joy, peace, slowness, ease, mental health? And is that also because I have chosen that and focused on that and and made that my life? Yes. So basically, I realized that this episode, it became the self-coaching session that I didn't realize I needed. I didn't realize that I am letting other people shame and fear me into something. And I didn't realize my beliefs on motherhood are completely aligned with my beliefs on every other area of life. And I don't think this realization means I'm going to feel easy breezy piece of cake about it from today on and I'm not going to feel terrified or intimidated anymore. But I do feel more clear that I want to choose joy, hope, peace, faith, trust, like I do in everything else in my life. And I trust that if you too are on the fence about this or any other issue, you will feel the same permission that just because other people say it is hard doesn't mean that you have to go in fearful of how hard it is. If you want or have kids and are exhausted by the negative stories, that you feel the same permission to be like, it doesn't matter that my kids are five and seven right now. If this is the story I've believed this whole time, can I choose a better feeling thought? We talk about that here all the time. If you have kids and you catch any phrases that you might casually say 
that you would pause and realize, I don't want to say to other women anymore, you know, enjoy your sleep, enjoy it now, just wait until, and maybe replace that with things like, you're doing the best you can, or you'll do the best you can. Your kids just want your love and they have got that. You know, anything that says you don't have to be more or less than you are. You don't have to be more present. You don't have to wish you were more in the future. You don't have to be more grateful right now or more chill or more anxious. You are enough. And your enough will be enough. And find your joy. No matter what anyone else tells you it is for them, find your peace and joy. And I wanted to do this episode as a bit of a time capsule because we will see where we are in a few years. <laughs> the what, how, when, where of children looks like for us. And we'll see a few years after that if we do have a child one day, what our reality is like. But I don't want to ever forget or gloss over my fears. Because when we do that, and when we're afraid to say something now, because we might change our mind, it might not work out the way that we think, we might feel differently, we might have been wrong, we might whatever, we gaslight the people who are having those feelings now in or in their own moment whenever they hear them. And my future self has compassion on my present self, that my present self is scared and hopeful and doing her best to have a healthy, realistic perspective and to choose hope and joy and faith and that that is not a posture we will regret. And that she is enough, that I am enough now, and I will be enough then, and you are too. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is a rack that I got to charge all of my devices. <laughs> Which sounds not revolutionary, but is one of those things that I just thought about doing now and then. It would cross my mind, but I never actually followed through with just making it happen. And I think so often we have those things where you're like, oh, I wish we had this in this spot, or it would just be easier if we do this. And I just, sometimes I'm just like, why did I not follow through with that? So I will link that in the description below, the one that I got. But it makes our kitchen look so much less cluttery. We had this one section where we had the the coffee pot and the paper towels and the, I'm like making a motion that you can't see, the sparkling water dispenser, soda stream, the soda stream. And there was just too much going on. It just always looked messy because there was all of these cords. So I wanted some place where all of the cords went inside and there was a very clear space. The other problem I kept having was the external charger bricks that I use whenever my phone is dead. I would use them, they would die or they'd be like half dead and they'd be on the counter and then we would slip them into a drawer and then they wouldn't get charged. So now it's the process that when you put the headphones down, the phone down, the brick down, 
they go on this divider rack so everything has their place. So I'm losing stuff less. I am finding stuff charged, uncharged less often. You know what I'm saying? And I have cleared the clutter in our kitchen, which then also inspired me to clear other clutter. It's kind of what I love about a good clutter clear. Once you start one section, then you're like, actually over here is kind of messy too. And you know what? We don't really use this thing anymore. And can we actually like, guys, I had like two cookbooks out as aesthetic decor that had to go and be replaced by this. And I was just like, I mean, I, I don't I don't cook. These cookbooks have sat here for like four years unused. I understand their cute decor. And so that was kind of fine to have them around. But like, why? Why not get rid of this? So we have cleared the clutter in our kitchen and, you know, a woman's place is in the kitchen. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, um, as you know, I don't cook. But whatever does or doesn't delight you, your fears, your life hacks for your family, your happiness, your joy, please come share with me over on Instagram. I cannot wait to hear from you. And I will see you right back here next Wednesday with grace and gumption. As always, you're welcome in advance. Till next Wednesday.